Um, well, if you're here for the first time, we want to tell you what a privilege it is to have you worship with us. We normally don't meet in the evenings. We normally meet 1030 on Sunday mornings where we will be next Sunday. Um, and we are in the middle of a movement through the Gospel of John. We started this about 12 weeks ago, and we are working through every word and every verse and every piece of it. And uh, it'll take us some time, but we kind of enjoy working through text that way and teaching through Scripture. And so we have begun a few weeks ago of a part of the section, if you will, of the Gospel of John that begins to deal with Jesus having direct interactions with people where he is revealing his deity in those interactions. And we spent three weeks talking about Nicodemus. We're actually now seeing Jesus going to encounter the very famous encounter with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. I I really tried to get through it all tonight, but we're only going to we're going to take three weeks to do it. Just too much cool stuff there. Uh, and tonight we're going to look at the first part of that encounter and take a little bit of a broader view and look at just how differently Jesus thought and lived when compared to the prevailing culture, both religious and pagan culture. And then next week we're going to look at their actual encounter and unpack some of the things that Jesus says. And the week, week after we'll see how that influenced and impacted the people um, around them. But it's a really incredible story and one that hopefully you're familiar with. If you've maybe been to church at all, you maybe have heard the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. Well, it, it really is a game changer on a lot of levels, and we're going to kind of look at some of that tonight. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 4, and we have made it all the way into John chapter 4. And reminder, just a quick reminder that John's... Um, His goal for his gospel is very different than the other gospels. It's different than the other synoptics, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is telling a different story. Same person, but he's he's telling a different story because what he wants us to focus on is the deity of Jesus Christ. Everything that John does is pointing us towards the deity of Jesus. He wants us to understand that Jesus is God's son, that Jesus is God in the flesh. In fact, the majority of his book is going to be spent surrounding the last week of the life of of Christ. But what John is doing now is he's showing us through interactions with people that Jesus is God. And the whole focus of John's gospel is not necessarily on geography or on stories, but on Jesus. He wants us to see Jesus, which makes my goal as a preacher, which is always is sort of the same anyway, but makes it incredibly simple as we go through this book. And that's that I just want you to see Jesus, right? I want you to understand Jesus as God's son and Jesus as savior of the world. And that is the heartbeat of the gospel. It is eternal life. Begins today, continues through our death. That is the promise of John's gospel. It's the promise of Jesus. So we're in the middle of this section and Jesus is starting to have encounters with people. And John is showing us just how incredible and divine Jesus is. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John 4. If you don't have one, there's probably one right around there or you... Have it on your phone. I always want you to bring them. I tell you all the time, bring your Bible if you're coming here. We are going to be in it every single week. There will never be a week that we teach that we won't be in it. So you might as well get one or bring it. If you don't have one, keep the one that's there. You're welcome to have that. Um, we get more. We'd love for you to just have it. We're in the book of John, chapter 4. We're going to start in the first 10 verses this evening. Before we do that, before we ever open up God's word, let's always go and pray. So let's just pray that God would teach our hearts this evening. Lord, I do thank you for the opportunity to gather and worship. I thank you for those that are here that ran Uh, whether they ran part or ran to the marathon or ran in the marathon. Lord, just grateful that they're here. Thank you for those that may be here for the first time. Thank you for drawing all of our hearts into this place, united by you. All kinds of different walks of life and demographics and ages and all these things. And you are just the uniter of people. Father, your, your gospel unites. Lord, as we'll see today, you are different, obviously, but you think different than culture. Lord, you, you act different than culture. You call us to act different and to think different than culture, God. 
But he calls us to think about things that matter. And as we look at this text today, I know that we're going to see that, and I know that I've been impacted by that. And so, Lord, I pray that that would stand out to us. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach your heart this evening. Um, Whatever that means, I don't really know maybe what's going on in your life or kind of how you need to ask the Lord that, but just ask him to teach you, um, to just let other things settle or fall away or just, just, just give him your heart for the next moments. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you um, or in front of you, behind you. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. This thing that we do is not about you. It's not about me. It's about us being a community that's committed to seeing people come to know Christ. So pray for someone around you. Maybe you know them. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's just somebody you've never seen. Just pray that God would move in them. Lord, we commit our time this evening to you. Uh, You are God. You are God. And so, God, we ask that you would teach our hearts, that you would remove barriers, that you would reveal truth to us. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so we ask you to teach us. And we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll look at the first 10 verses, and then we're not going to get much farther than that. But there's some great stuff in here I want to pull out. So let's look at the first 10 verses together, and then we'll just kind of take a little bit of an overview tonight. So the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was was baptizing, uh, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once again to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, we're going to stop at the beginning of an interaction they're going to have because I want to spend next week really exploring the theological things behind the interaction that they have. But what I want to do this evening is I want to unpack this sort of broader view because Jesus' ministry is going to begin to come in conflict with both the religious culture and the pagan culture. They're both going to have issues with Jesus. And what we're going to see this evening is just how differently Jesus thought and acted and lived when it came to the prevailing culture. We actually see it right here in this text. And it's a really fascinating picture because it starts out by John saying, look, Jesus was actually gaining a whole lot of notoriety. In fact, his ministry was becoming so large that he was baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist was. And then John says, well, Jesus wasn't really baptizing, it was the disciples. But the point is, his ministry was growing, right? His ministry was growing, and the Pharisees were beginning to take note of this. Now, the Pharisees, we know, had begun to pay attention to John the Baptist's ministry some time ago. They were kind of out there, and they were arguing with him, and they were engaging in conversation. And, and John was telling them, like, look, I'm not the Messiah, but I am pointing the way to the Messiah. And the Pharisees were very aware of what was happening with John the Baptist because any religious uprising, if you will, or any religious sort of gathering got their attention because they either had to squash it or they had 
to address it, any of these that actually gained momentum. Because there were a lot of traveling rabbis and things out in those days. But ones that began to begin, kind of get, get a momentum going, they had to pay attention to. So they paid attention to John's ministry and the baptisms that he was doing. Well, now Jesus was starting to gain this momentum. And he was baptizing, or the disciples were baptizing more people than John. And the Pharisees were going, whoa, whoa wait a minute. We need to shift our attention. This is kind of a big deal. And so John is basically showing right now that tension is going to begin to grow between the ministry of Christ and the religious establishment. So what John is doing is he's setting us up for things are actually going to start getting very tense between culture, especially the religious culture, and the ministry of Christ. So the Pharisees begin to take note of this. And it says that when the Lord, when Jesus learned of this, Right? He left Judea and he went back one more time or once more to Galilee. Right? So it says that he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria named Sychar. Now, quick little geography lesson. Ancient Palestine was only 120 miles long, so top to bottom. wasn't really large. On the west boundary was the Mediterranean Sea. On the east boundary, I guess if you're looking this way, was the Jordan River. Right? It was a long strip of land. At the bottom was Judea. At the top was Galilee. And right in the middle was Samaria, right? So if you're, you're kind of looking at Israel, ancient Palestine, you've got Galilee at the top, big area region. You've got Judea at the bottom, big area region, and Samaria right in the middle. And the borders uh, were the ocean on one side, the Mediterranean Sea, and the Jordan River on the other. And it sort of made this whole little area. You can kind of still see it today, but that's kind of how it was laid out back in those days. So Jesus was in Judea, right? He was down there and he had gone out in the countryside. We learned this last week where he was, he and his disciples were, were preaching and his disciples were baptizing. And when he heard the Pharisees were beginning to get stirred up, he decides that it's time for him to return to Galilee. So he was going from south to north, right? Some significant miles there. And it says that as he goes, he had to go through Samaria. And so he came to a town there called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Now, this is a really famous piece of land, actually. You trace it all the way back to Genesis 48, I think. Genesis 48, uh, Jacob gives land to his son Joseph. And that land had a well on it. And the well's really famous. In fact, if you go to the Holy Land today, you can actually still see it. It's one of the only few undisputed real locations and the Holy Land exists because a lot of people say, no, this was there. This was. It's really hard to move a hundred foot well. So they know that that was where Jacob's well was. You can actually go there and see it. It's kind of encased in a building now today, but you can actually still, still go there. It's a very famous uh, piece of, of real estate. And, and in those days, some centuries before, you could trace its, its origin all the way back to Jacob and Joseph, right? And so it's a very important uh, piece of uh, a, a real estate, a piece, a well, and it was deep. Uh, it was about 120 feet. And so a lot of wells in those days were wells that were surface wells that would come out of the rocks, that would bubble up from the ground. They were sort of natural. This was significant because it was dug uh, by hand and it was uh, a deep water well. And so there it stopped there and Jesus leans against this well, right? Uh, tired by the journey because we're starting to see Jesus' humanity, right? He was both fully God and fully man. And he's, he's tired and so he leans against this well, which I'm guessing is what you imagine it to be, right? Maybe a, a sort of an outcrop with stones around it and you could lower a rope and a bucket or a vessel down in there and draw water out. And the disciples, he sends into town, right, to buy food, which is not all that uncommon. Following a traveling rabbi, he would send those that are with him in to buy food and bring it back. So the disciples go in to buy food, and Jesus is leaning against uh, the well. 
when a Samaritan woman comes up, right? It's about the sixth hour, which is about noon. She comes up to draw water. Um, Jesus looks at her and says, will you give me a drink? And uh, she's taken aback. She asks, asks a very valid question, which we'll get to in just a moment. She says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. So John tells us, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But he says, if you knew who it was and who I am that asked you for a drink, you would actually be asking me, and I would give you living water. And this is going to begin a dialogue that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman that we will explore that is just incredible, right? But what I want to do this evening is I want to back up a little bit, and I want to look at this from a little bit broader context. Um, Because Jesus... Well, he thought and he lived, and this shouldn't be a surprise, but he thought and he lived in direct opposition at times to prevailing culture. He did things that were so different than culture, um, and he lived in such a way that was so opposite of both pagan and religious culture that it threw everything into turmoil. We actually see this evening a really great example of just how different Jesus thought and lived. And that first piece is really how Jesus thought. He thought differently than the prevailing culture did. Now you've got to know, and I've told you this before, and you probably know this, but the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. They couldn't stand them. In fact, they would do nothing with them. Uh, They didn't associate with them, mainly because the Samaritans were descendants of Jewish people that had broken God's law and had intermarried when the Assyrians carried off the northern kingdom centuries before that. So the, the northern kingdom had disobeyed God, and God told them that they were going to basically be exiled. The northern kingdom by the Assyrians. The Assyrians came in and wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel, and they carried a bunch of people off, and they just sort of settled there. And God told them not to intermarry, but the Jews there decided that they needed to anyway, and so they intermarried, and they created a, and so what Jewish people would say, a mixed race, right? Both bloodline Jews and bloodline Assyrians. And they settled there in Samaria, and the Jewish people couldn't have anything to do with them. In fact, they were religiously called to not interact with them. They felt like they were dirty and unclean, and if they touched them, they would be ceremonially unclean, and they couldn't worship or go to temple or any of those things. In fact, the Jewish people so despised the Samaritans that if you had to go from Galilee to Judea or Judea to Galilee, what you would typically do is you would walk 20 miles to the east, you would cross the Jordan River, you would then walk up About 15 miles, you would cross back over the Jordan River just so that you didn't have to put one foot in that country, right? Which is fascinating. But they couldn't and wouldn't have anything to do with them. Which is really powerful when you look at verse 4 when John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to. Actually, I've read several different things that said, scholars that have said, Jesus had to go through Samaria because he was in a hurry to get from Judea to Galilee, which I don't know where that comes from. We have never in our lives seen Jesus really in a hurry to get anywhere, right? You never really be like, oh man, I'm late. We got Jesus jets out. Jesus lingers. He pokes around. And the disciples are constantly annoyed by the fact that Jesus seems to be lingering around talking to people when they want to go places. In fact, we see Jesus linger enough times where sometimes people that are sick die because Jesus didn't hustle himself over there and he ends up doing incredible things like raising Lazarus from the dead because he was poking around talking to people and engaging in other things. Jesus is never in a hurry. I can't imagine that he had to get there because he was 
I don't late for a banquet or something. Like, I just don't see it. But what I do see is that Jesus always had these divine encounters and moments. And so he had to go through Samaria, not because he was going to be late for something in Galilee, but because he had an encounter that he was going to have with this woman. And so in order to have that encounter, I have to go through. Because Jesus was not concerned with all of our religious boundaries. He's not concerned with all the rules that we created about ceremonial cleanliness that took the law to the thousandth degree and, and legalized, right, what was called to be a separation of prepare God's people for worship and turned it into a legalistic event. Jesus threw away all those boundaries, right? So he had to go through Samaria because he had to encounter this woman. And that would take him right through the heart of a country that no religious people would walk through. This is how Jesus thought, right? I'm more concerned with the heart of the woman that's going to be drawing water than I am with whoever came up with the rules that we can't walk through your country, right? Because it might do this or might be seen this way. He thought different. And we're going to see this sort of played out. And I'll give you an example of this in just a moment. But he thought differently than that prevailing culture. He also acted really different, right? It's, it's one thing to, to go, hey, I'm going to walk through Samaria. It's another thing to get to a town, go to a well, sit down by that well, engage in a conversation with a Samaritan woman, and ask her for a drink of a vessel that she touched, right? Which would actually make you unclean. I mean, I can't express to you how disastrous this would have been from a religious cultural standpoint, right? So Jesus at this point in time was, a ho- was seen sort of as a holy man, if you will. He was a rabbi. He was a traveling teacher. The Pharisees, remember Nicodemus, had come to Jesus and said, hey, we believe you're one of us, right? Surely you are a rabbi. Nobody could do the things you do if God wasn't with them. People believe that Jesus was at worst a man of God, right? Like a, a holy traveling rabbi. Well, a good religious Jewish man at that point in time would never have a conversation with a woman. Now, I know it sounds crazy and ridiculous, but you've got to put yourself 2,000 years ago in culture. And he would not be having a conversation with a woman alone, no matter what. There was too many things that could go wrong there. I could be, uh, it could be rumors or gossip, or I could be tempted, or I could be whatever. I would never have that conversation. So if we had to be alone, he would not have a conversation with her, period, right? Much less a Samaritan woman. We know that they didn't go through Samaria, and we know that the Jews wouldn't have anything to do with them, but what Jesus asks her for is extreme because she would have to physically take her hands and put it on a drinking vessel, lower that vessel into the water, and then hand it to Jesus. And the moment he touched that vessel, he would become religiously unclean. He couldn't participate in worship, engage in temple life until he cleaned himself from a ceremonial standpoint. And that's why Jewish people didn't share eating utensils or drinking utensils or touch anything that a Samaritan touched because they believed that it defiled them. So here's Jesus, traipsing through the heart of Samaria, leaning against a well, engaging in a conversation with a Samaritan woman by himself and asking to basically touch a vessel that she touched that he was going to drink from. I I literally cannot explain to you how incredibly disastrous this was. In fact, the disciples are going to come back in verse 27. We'll see this in a couple weeks. And they are going to be shocked that Jesus is talking to her. Like they won't be able to get over the fact that here is Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman. 
it's going to blow their minds because no one did it. There wasn't a Jewish man alive in those days that would have engaged in what Jesus just did. He lived incredibly different. And there was a reason. It wasn't just because it was this arbitrary kind of approach to life because Jesus knew and understood what really mattered. Listen to what he says to her in verse 10, right? In verse 10, after having this sort of, can I have a drink? And she has a question, which is a very valid one. How can you ask me for a drink? Do you not see that I am a woman and I'm a Samaritan woman and you're asking for the vessel that I'm going to touch? No one does this. No one's ever asked me. You won't even associate with me. Her question's incredibly valid. In fact, she is a bit of an outcast. In fact, we actually, we actually know a little bit more about her in the next coming, chapter, next coming verses. But we get a picture of that right here. She comes to the well at noon. So the well was outside of town. In those days, women usually went to the well in groups, and they would go in the morning to get the daily water that they would need, and they would go at sunset to get water for cleaning and bathing. But they would always travel in groups. Yet here we see this woman coming at noon in the heat of the day by herself when no one else would be there. And we get a picture of her standing in that culture. We're actually going to learn a lot about her, that she's got a really broken life. But we get that sense right here. So here's a woman, pretty much an outcast in her society, coming at noon in the heat of the day to draw water by herself when no one else would be there, either because she didn't want to be seen or because the group wouldn't take her. And here's Jesus talking to this broken, despised Samaritan woman, if you will, asking to touch the jar that she's touched, to drink from a jar that she's put her hands on, sitting in the middle of a country that no one would go to. Why? Because Jesus understood things that mattered. Listen to verse 10. He says, right, he has this conversation with her. He actually begins this conversation with her. And he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So he says, listen, this is not about Jews and Samaritans. It's actually not about men and women. It's not even really about water and drinking. There's something so much bigger at play. And he says, look, if, if you knew who I really was, that I am the gift from God, that what I have to offer, you would be asking me for something that would change your life, that would make you thirst from your soul no longer. Jesus says, I am that living water. I am the gift from God. Jesus is speaking directly into a much deeper need and question. So she says this earthly, how can you possibly associate with me? And Jesus responds this incredible eternal response, which is how could I not? And I find it incredible because Jesus understood things that mattered. And he was willing to push back on both cultural, religious, and pagan systems in order to get to the deeper need. And the truth is that most of us as followers of Christ won't do that. We have boundaries. We have religious ones. We have cultural ones, and they're ones we won't cross. We live in those today. Most of us know they're there, but don't like to talk about them. But we live with those boundaries, and Jesus, he didn't care about the boundaries. He understood the heart of the woman he was going to encounter and he was willing to throw all of those other things away to speak into her heart. And we're going to see the impact that it has in the coming weeks. But here's what I mean by that. We have boundaries that we won't break or cross. 
You may have yours. I may have mine. We have them all set, different cultural and religious boundaries. We have things that we won't do and things that we really like. And one of those things is that, and I've told this story before, and I'll I'll do it again because I think it matters here, but the church itself loves pretty people. Like, we just do. We love pretty people. And I'm not talking about, like, actual physical attractiveness, although we like that, but we love people that project a certain image, makes us feel comfortable. And because we love pretty people, we love to tell each other about the people that go to our church. Oh, you know, the president so-and-so goes to our church, the guy that used to own this goes to our church, or this family goes to our church. We tell the stories. We celebritize, I told you this, but we celebritize pastors and, and bloggers and, and authors, and, and we do all those things because we like to say, I go, and I'm here, and we love that picture of people. And because we love that picture of people, we also love the picture of the person that is recovering from whatever their tragic life story is, right? We love the picture of the person in recovery. We love to have that person stand up here on a Sunday morning and say, I used to be broken, but God changed me. And we clap and we applaud and we love that story. But we don't know what to do with people who are actually really deeply broken and bruised and shattered. We just don't know what to do with them, right? We love the story of recovery, but we don't know what to do with people that are broken, like this woman at the well. It's one of the boundaries that we have set up in our hearts. Years ago, I met this girl at a soup kitchen in New Brunswick, Canada. Her name was Kim. I mean, decade plus ago. Um, and she was there doing community service, and I had a team that was there leading, and we were doing mission work out in kind of rural uh, backwoods Canada. And uh, we were at the soup kitchen one day, and she was there doing community service because she got arrested for drug use or something along those lines. And, and we were sitting at this table, and I was just talking to her because we were waiting for people to come in and eat. And we were just kind of shooting the breeze. And I started asking her about her story, and she was sort of telling me how, you know, from the ages of about 10 to 13, she started using drugs. She started stealing from her parents. Uh, she started running away. She just gave me this unbelievable story of heart and sort of heartache and brokenness and and talked about how addiction had entered her life and how she had a couple of kids two she knew where they were two she didn't you know how she'd gotten arrested for like the 15th time and she finally now was a was not a minor anymore and was having to face some of these charges and she had a disease that she wasn't going to be able to get rid of now because of the things that she did to earn money to pay for her addiction I mean you can understand how the story goes and she was sad she looked about 40 she was about 20 um, and I was so sad for her. And it was the first time in my life, and this was years and years ago, that I encountered someone that I didn't know how to fix or do anything with, right? And I looked at her, and I was trying to talk to her about how much God loved her, and I just listened, I just talked, and she just cried, and, and that was it, all right? And I don't know that she got any better, and I doubt she did, and she probably went on to whatever she was going to do and probably get out of jail. I mean, she was just a deep, broken, sad addict. So I went back to church where I was working at the time. This was, again, years ago. And it really started to mess up the way I thought about things because I started looking at the church I was working at thinking, I don't know what would happen if that girl came here. Because I know that as a church, we would stand her up when she was better, and we would say, man, this is Kim. And Kim met Jesus, and she used to be an addict and a prostitute and a stripper and all these things, and now she's not. And God has changed her and redeemed her and everyone would stand up and they would clap and they would be excited and they would yell for her and they would hoop and holler. But we would not know what to do with her when she came in the back not fixed and sat next to your family with two kids and wanted to hold your hand while she sat there and cried. We have no idea what to do with her. We squeeze our purse a little tighter, right? We wonder if she's showered. 
We don't know what to do with those broken people. And so you know what that fuels? It fuels in us a desire as a church to put on a perspective that doesn't show people who we truly are. Because we do not want to exist in this place of true, authentic vulnerability. Because we love the picture of people that don't struggle. So we have people every Sunday that walk in here whose marriages are broken. You would never know. And they sit here and they sit together and they listen, but all they can think about is how nobody knows that all they do is fight. And we have people that come in here that are sad because they're in their 30s and everybody around them seems to have figured out their life. And I don't. And I'm single or I'm whatever. And everybody looks at me as if I'm some kind of outcast and I don't even know what I'm going to do. And we have people that walk in here that have secret addictions, that struggle, that have fears, that have failures that they would never say out loud because we've created a culture. And I'm not just saying here, but as a church, we've created a culture, right, where we love the story of recovery but don't know what to do with real deep, broken sinfulness. And so the church continues just to cover it up. And we don't want to think about Kim laying under Broadway extension on some mattress with a needle in her arm and no shoes. We don't want to think about it, much less actually go down there, traipse through Samaria, if you will, sit on the corner of her mattress or her well, and ask to share her sandwich. Nope. Nope. No. I can't even think about it, much less think about what it would be like to sit there, go down there, or bring her into my home. And this isn't a guilt. It's just the different way that Jesus thought than the world and then culture. And we as a church culture, man, we love it when you come here and you're better. But when you come here and you're not better, we don't really know what to do. We don't really know how to approach it. We don't really know what to do with it. And so we all just cover up our stuff, right? But what Jesus does in this woman's life is he speaks directly into it. And he basically is going to tell her, I know you. Next week, you're going to see him say it. He's going to look at her and go, I know you. I know the part of you that no one knows. I know about your marriages. I know about your brokenness. And I know why you're here alone at the well. And it is the most petrifying thing for most of us to think about being exposed. Truly, really exposed. But Jesus was so countercultural that he spoke directly into that. Now, as a church, right, we are called, as people, we are called to go and do and be the things that Jesus was. 1 John 2, 6 says, If anyone claims to live in him, Jesus, they must walk as Jesus did. What we see in, in John 4 is Jesus walking through the heart of Samaria, leaning against a well and blowing up every religious boundary there was, possibly making himself unclean and everything in the middle to speak into the heart of a woman who was dying and broken. And 1 John 2, 6 says, Treb, if you claim to live in Jesus, you've got to walk where he walked. And I believe it is both a physical and a mental thing. And I'll do neither. I'll do neither. Why? Because we've been ingrained to think differently and to be protected by boundaries. What church looks like, when it meets, where we go, when I'm comfortable, whatever. And when you push any of those boundaries... I'll find somewhere else to go. 
It's why we'll probably never reach 5,000 people, right? It's why this may be it. (laughs) It's why you may not be back here next week. I mean, this is the thing, right? Because it's uncomfortable. But you know what? The gospel is ridiculously messy. And 1 John 2, 6 should jack your life up. It should mess up your heart. Like if I claim to live in Jesus, I've got to walk where he walked. That should mess things up for me. It should. It has to. I can't just continue to be super comfortable. Why? Because the gospel changes everything. It exposes me for the deep sinner that I am, for the liar that I am, the cheat that I am, the mistakes that I am. And for every one of us sitting in here that thinks we're none of those things, it exposes us to our desperate need for Jesus. The gospel is the great equalizer, right? Kim wears it differently, but she's not different. It's the great equalizer because it exposes all of our sin and our desperate need for Jesus, whether you're there or whether you are here. We all have this desperate need for Jesus. And as the church, as followers of Christ, we are called to put our feet where he put his feet. And maybe tonight you're sitting here and you feel a whole lot more like the woman at the well or like Kim than you do somebody that should be traipsing through Samaria. Maybe you feel like the outcast. Why well, literally have the greatest news in the universe for you. And that is that Jesus loves you and he came for you. He loves you and he came for you. That you were not a mistake, that you were not an accident, that you are loved and cared for and he died so that you might know that. The gospel is the incredible truth and it should change everything, right? What boundaries do we need to bend and break? What systems do we need to push against, right? What cultural paradigms do we need to absolutely destroy? What religious paradigms need to disappear so that we'd be willing to walk through the heart of Samaria, lean against a well, and look at the culture and just say, I don't care because I love Jesus. He changed me and rescued me, and there is nothing I will do, nothing I won't do to tell the entire world that this is for them. No matter what they look like or where they're from, whether the skin color is or what side of the tracks they were on or what they do or don't do or whatever sin they're deeply engaged in, there is nothing that will stop me from telling you that Jesus loves you. Because look, he loves me, right? He loves you and has come for you and it changes everything. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for just the opportunity to look a little bit different at your word this evening. And and, um, Lord, I know there's a lot of us in here that for us that's, Something we hear and we say, man, I agree. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to live that. I don't even know what that means. And I don't think it's all that complicated. I just think it means we need to quit thinking about ourselves so much and begin to think differently about people. I think that we need to understand, God, that we are deeply broken and that I am no better than the person sitting to my right or my left. That, God, that I am petrified of being exposed for the sinner that I am. And that I need you. Lord, I need you. Some of us in here feel a lot like the woman at the well. A little bit of an outcast, a little bit we don't know where to fit in. Draw our water at noon so that nobody sees us or points to us or talks to us or whatever because we don't have an answer for some of those things. God, some of us here, we we are ingrained as a religious establishment pointing our fingers at those around us going, you can't do that. We don't do that on Sundays here. Lord, the truth is, is that 
you're a, a world changer. You're just a world changer. You turn all of those things upside down and you break those molds. You break those paradigms. You shatter those religious rules that we put in place. You think differently. You act differently because you understand what matters, Lord. And most of us think the same and act the same and we have no clue what really matters. And God, you were more concerned with a woman's heart than you were about the world looking at you going, you're unclean. And God, we confess that we are more concerned with what the world says than we are about the woman's heart. And it's hard to say out loud for me, but it is true. I'm oftentimes more concerned with the voice of others than I am with your own call on my life. That is sad, but it's true. And so, Lord, I pray that what you would do is just turn our worlds upside down continually as individuals and as a church, push our paradigms, push our systems, break our boundaries. Let us be a church and a people that follow you wherever that may be. Let us be people that are exposed for our sin and love each other anyway. Let us be people that are willing to drop all of our guards to say, we need Jesus. Jesus, you have loved us and you have come for us and you can have our hearts and lives. As we close our time in worship this evening, let's stand together and and sing those truths to God to say, God, you are just that great.